0: Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show.
1: Let's start with the Western Conference. It's now all tied up. Houston 2, Golden State 2. The Rockets beat the Warriors last night. 112 12 on They even up that series at two games apiece. And if you think that that series is not going 7, you might want to rethink that. If you want to say that the series was over after Golden State won the first two, you might want that one back also. Remember, the Rockets spent the entire year telling anybody and everybody that they not only wanted Golden State, but that they could beat Golden State. That they were the only team who could do it. And after two games in Houston, it's kind of hard to disagree with that. From Daryl Morey, all the way down, they believe it. They know it. When other teams wanted to wait the Warriors out, Morey wanted to knock the Warriors out. So he built a team that could do just that. That's why it was so weird. And honestly, way beneath the Rockets that they spent so much time crying and complaining about the refs after game one. Obviously, these guys do not need the refs. They can win this series straight up. And it's not just because they have James Harden, although he has been ridiculous. He had 38 last night, including this joke from about a mile away.
2: Clay, they're not settling just for jump shots. Taking the ball off the dribble here. And a page out of Houston's notebook. Wow, look how far this was. Oh, my goodness.
1: Absolutely stupid. But let's be honest. As good as Harden was last night, in all facets of the game, it always comes back to the step-back three. I mean, there's not a more predictable but unstoppable shot in the game right now than that Harden step-back three. You know It's coming. Yet yeah, dudes continue to get wrecked time and time again. Guys like Clay Thompson.
2: Harden tonight, three of seven. Thompson's defense there. Step back. Three down Good! He's done it again.
1: And Clay's not the only one. Others like Draymond Green. I mean, we're talking about two vets. Two vets who are experienced defenders, great defenders, even lockdown defenders. And yet Harden still beats them with that because that is impossible to stop. This guy gets you off balance. He gets you leaning. And then you can just go ahead and cancel Christmas. But last night was not only about James Harden. And it wasn't about Eric Gordon, who's been a beast in Houston. 30 in game three, 20 in game four. No, let me tell you what last night was about. Last night was about one Anthony, Leon, P.J., Tucker, Jr. That's an attitude game. That's a statement game. And the statement was, we have P.J. Tucker and you don't. P.J. Tucker has offensive rebounds. That's also what that was about. The fact that they've got P.J. and he's got offensive boards. Lots of offensive boards. You know how many? All the offensive boards. Last night was not a James Harden game. It was a P.J. Tucker game. My man was an absolute monster when he wasn't causing Durant problems on defense. He was causing all of Golden State problems on the glass. For stretches of that game last night, it felt like Houston's shots were either going in the basket or into P.J. Tucker's hands. Like I was stunned to look at the box score and see he only went for 17 and 10. Because it felt like he had 17 rebounds and about 170, or 17 points, and about 170 rebounds. This guy was everywhere. It's like the team-reviewed film from the first two games of the series where they were out-rebounded by Golden State. And P.J. Tucker just said, to hell with all that. I got this. Because he did. Because he had that. He had everything. And for big chunks of that game, he was the biggest rocket on the floor. This guy's six six. used to win small ball. James Harden was frequently the second tallest rocket out on the floor, and they still out-rebounded Golden State. Still manhandled them on the glass, especially the offensive glass. Harden had 10 rebounds. Chris Paul had 8. Austin Rivers had 6. Like, what the hell was going on? What was that all about? Draymond Green had an idea. we go to a, a fight, thinking it's a fair fight,
2: and it's not you know they're doing whatever it takes to win, and not that they're like doing anything dirty or nothing like that, but they're doing whatever it takes to win, and we're just kind of rolling in look like, oh yeah, we'll box and and they slamming us, so uh, we gotta just change our mindset, and I think if we change our mindset uh you know then then we'll be just fine, but um, we haven't.
1: That's it, right? Golden State's in there throwing out their kind of show-me-a-jab, a few show-me-jabs, and then they get clocked. This is why it was so important for Houston to get Golden State as early as possible because that way they'd be as fresh as possible, and they are. Harden's fresh. Paul is healthy. They've got some bounce. They've got some juice. They won those two games with incredible skill, but also with incredible energy and effort. And in large part that's where it's come down to at least there Golden State could not match Houston's effort or their energy or their intensity or their physicality or as Steve Kerr points out their toughness
3: yeah they got a lot of middle linebackers on that team they're 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 uh, they're, they're sturdy and uh, you know we look like uh, more like volleyball players uh, long and lean uh, but uh, we've done this many times before and we've played all kinds of different teams and everybody tries to be physical with us um, and you know because they should that's uh, that's the best way to try to uh, to try to beat us and uh, so Houston's very physical Uh, they're very good Uh, but I'll go back to it again we know what we have to do
1: 100% he nailed that it did feel like middle linebackers and volleyball players but it wasn't just the rebounds it was that and the loose balls. It seemed like the Rockets get to every loose ball. It seemed like they won every hustle play. The Sam and Will linebackers were beating up the setter and the outside hitter. And speaking of hitting from the outside, the Warriors could use a little more of that right now. 8 for 32 from beyond the arc. That's not getting it done. But it wasn't about the three-point shooting only. Because as poorly as they shot it from the outside, they still had to look at that game. They really didn't deserve a look at tying the game late, but they had two very good ones in the end nonetheless. Durant catches up top. Deep three straight on. Hits up. It's no good.
4: Tipped out by Draymond. Over to Curry. Pump fake. Takes a three. No good. Rebound Paul. He is fouled with 2.9 to go. They had good looks, Tim.
1: Kevin Durant had a great look up top. Warriors radio. Kevin Durant had an awesome look. Steph had a good look. And that's the crazy thing about that series. The Warriors won the first two games by 4 and 6. And then everybody rushed in to say, it's over. Then Houston wins the next two by 5 and 4. And now we're all tied up. And it looks like it might go down as one of the best series ever. It might. Hall of Famers all over the floor. Hating on each other. bawling the hell out. And looking like they're on a collision course for 7. It's exactly what the league needed. Exactly what we all needed. The thing we all waited for all year long. And it's playing out exactly the way we had hoped. You know, as usual, nothing ever lives up to the hype except this might. And save that bull crap about how the series never starts until somebody wins on the road. And if you're a Golden State fan and you think it's still a lock because you've got that potential Game 7 in your barn, you want to rethink that too. Because the one thing that Houston wants more than anything else is to not only beat Golden State and shut everybody up, but to beat them and shut down Oracle in a Game 7 on the road in order to get to the NBA Finals. And the thing is, they might. They sure as hell might. Now it's a best of three. Who do you got? James Jones. James, so good to have you on. How are you? I'm good, Jim. Thanks for having me, man. Great to have you. Appreciate it. So normally when I talk to a GM about a new coaching hire, the first question is, what is it about that new head coach that makes you feel like that's the right fit? But honestly, from the standpoint of Monty Williams everybody seems to like this guy everybody respects him. so why was he your pick and why is that the best fit? I mean for
5: this team you know this is a team this is a, a situation you know we've had a tremendous adversity here in Phoenix. Um, we have a bunch of young guys who um, haven't really experienced winning and so when we targeted the coach and we, we settled on Monty you know he demonstrated everything that we wanted our guys to to exhibit you know high character integrity, Um, he's extremely uh, perseverant Um, and and, and it comes back to he's a guy that's a a basketball lifer who loves the the game, is a team guy and when you talk to Monty he always refers to every single player as my guy and and when you're trying to change a culture and build a culture you want someone that can lead And, and he was the best leader uh, of all the candidates,
1: contractors can rely on Ferguson to provide a winning game plan for any job, any day. Thanks to their pro pickup service, you can choose from thousands of products to order online and pick up in store, which makes doing business with Ferguson the easiest part of your entire day. We're talking to James Jones. So, what you have there is a guy that understands it. You've got that shared vision, but specifically, what is the vision? Like when you got with him and you talked about the process and the types of ideas he had, where did you guys come together in terms of the vision?
5: The vision of, 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 of blending Devin Booker's skill set and his production with DeAndre Ayton's potential. Um, you know, in today's NBA, it, it's a guard league, a guards league. And if you can, can score the ball the way Devin can, um, that puts you in a good position. And, but then, you know, if you can have a dominant big guy, someone that can, can shoot 65, 70% from the field, uh, can, can impact the game defensively and offensively, get you a bucket in late-game situations when teams go to switching every single play, um, that, that's the recipe for success. So, Monty, being able to bring those two guys together and be the, the bridge or wedge between those two uh, is, is very exciting for
1: our franchise. Phoenix Suns GM James Jones is my guest. You know, you mentioned Aiden. He finished up his rookie season. He's still just 20, and he averaged better than 16-10 and 10 for the year. So what do you make of the way he held the transition from college to the NBA?
5: I mean, he did a, he did a tremendous job. And, you can ask him by his standards. He still thinks that he he, he left uh, some production on the table, but it's a tough thing being a number one pick. It's a tough thing, a tough thing coming into uh, the NBA on, on the, the league's, league. You know, at the time we were the league's worst team, and uh, he, he did a tremendous job. So we're looking forward to his growth this summer and excited about his future.
1: And James, when you retired as a player in 2017, the two things that kept coming up were champ and professional. Those two words. First of all, how much pride do you take in the fact that so many guys just refer to you as champ? What does that mean to you?
5: I mean, it's humbling. I think it just shows that you know, everything that I did as a player, as a teammate, resonated with the guys um, on my team. and Those teams were filled with winners, Hall of Famers, you know, guys who had greater production. Uh, their careers will stand out way more than mine. But uh, to, be, to be respected by your peers is, is something special.
1: I'll take it one step further. Kevin Love had an amazing Instagram post that read in part, quote, a mentor to me, somebody who understood what it took to win in this league, a difference maker, a true professional, so much to say about Champ. Man, more than anything, I'm going to miss bouncing ideas off of him and learning from your experience. Best teammate I've ever had and proud to call you one of my best friends. I mean, that is extremely high praise. Obviously, you were a mentor to so many guys. But if you go back to the beginning of your career, when you first got in, who were some of the guys that mentored you? Who did you learn from back in the day?
5: Well, I was I was blessed to come into the, the NBA. I was drafted to the Indiana Pacers, and I had Reggie Miller as my veteran. I had Larry Bird as a president in the front office. I had Donnie Walsh, who was um in, in the front office as well. Um and, and, and I had David Morway, who was with Utah. Um Jermaine O'Neal, Ron Artest, Al Harrington. Um you know Steven Jackson. I had a, a cross section of guys who were really good players, but but more importantly, they were extremely competitive. And I think. Um, That's what what I I got from my time coming into the league at at an early age as a player was you have to compete at everything. And and, and if you try to excel at everything, uh, the worst that will happen is that you'll have a long, fruitful career.
1: So those are some really strong personalities in that locker room back in the day when you're talking about Reggie Miller, Steven Jackson, Ron Artest. like Look, back then when you got there, whose team was that? How did they kind of work their way through the uh, chemistry of that locker room?
5: Well, it was Reggie's team. Um, But Jermaine had started to take a step forward. And so you had this blending of the old school and the new school. You had Reggie's uh, impeccable professionalism and and Jermaine's uh, raw, physical, just exceptional talent. You had Ron Artest, you know, his tough uh, grittiness. grittiness But that was a demonstration for me of of what it takes to be an elite team. You have to find a way to blend personalities, blend skill sets, and take the egos out of the room. And and that's what I'm trying to do here in Phoenix, which is take some young guys who all have amazing skill sets, but blend it together. And and I think that's why Monty was the right guy for us, because I, I believe he's the guy that will actually be able to do that.
1: We're talking to James Jones, so obviously you bring him in, you're looking to change the culture up. It's an organization, as you point out, that suffered through a number of really tough seasons. As a player, you were used to playing in meaningful games at the highest level, so what kind of a toll has the losing taken on the players and on you?
5: Well, it's, it, it's been difficult, but I think the, the, the good thing for us is we, we have a young, fresh team. You know, The teams that, are, that struggled four or five years ago Uh, That's not this team. We have, you know, we're built around a bunch of young guys. Last year we played four rookies major minutes, and and that's a challenge for any team. But their exposure to the tough times, uh, it hasn't lasted very long. And we're hopeful that this summer, by adding another good young player, um, some veterans in their prime, uh, some some really good NBA players, but more importantly high-character basketball uh, guys, I, I think that'll help us kind of get past that that, that tough time.
1: Suns GM, James Jones, is my guest. Now, there are a lot of perceptions and thoughts about what it's like to work with Robert Sarver. What has that been like for you, and how accurate are these perceptions? They're, they're not
5: accurate. I mean, like like all things, you play the game of telephone, you hear one thing, it becomes something else, but I think no one can deny that Robert's passionate, that he he wants to win, you know, that he wants us to be successful. He wants the Suns uh, to continue to move forward. Uh, but, yeah, he, he's intense, and, and it hasn't been a, a, a struggle for me. Um, my career as a player, I was always under constant evaluation, constant scrutiny. Um, pressure uh, was nothing if you were prepared for it. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's a very uh, good environment for me because it challenges me to find uh, solutions and, and to try to do something that uh, hasn't been done here in a, in a while, and, and that challenge in itself is, is very exciting
1: for me. So what about your time as a player? You spent 14 years in the NBA. You won three championships. When you look back on the championships, what are the moments and the emotions that you remember the most?
5: I mean, well, the one I can't forget is game six in Miami. uh, The Heat versus the Spurs where Ray Allen hits a shot after Chris Bosh gets an offensive rebound. Just the resiliency, the perseverance. You know, we had people leaving out of the building. And uh, just to remember that the guys on the floor, those coaches over there, they still believed. and, And we were able to pull it out. Uh, so I'll remember that, and then coming back from three one against Golden State, um, that was that was memorable. and and just being able to bring a championship to the city of Cleveland, uh, no one would have ever thought that was possible, but we were able to do it. and And so I take a lot of satisfaction in knowing that that team fought through it. and, and more importantly, that those fans who were so uh, appreciative and so supportive through all those years that they finally reaped the rewards of uh, of our hard work,
1: James Jones, my guest, those fans who left the who left the building before the end of the game and missed the comeback because they weren't allowed back in, I, I still can't help but chuckle about that. But you're in Miami with the organization that had Pat Riley on top. How would you describe that particular culture and the expectations that Riley created?
5: Well, he, he set the bar high. You know, championships were important. Championships were the only thing that mattered. Um, and, you know, but it wasn't just saying championships mattered. It was the desire to, do, to develop championship habits day in and day out and hold guys to that standard. And that's something I take from Miami that I believe resonates with this current group of guys here in Phoenix. You know, we're trying to develop championship habits. We're talking about championship plays. We're talking about championship, uh, championship a championship culture that requires daily work, uh, a daily pursuit of excellence. And if we can do that, if we can get our young guys believing in that, I, I think – uh, this, the future is bright for the
1: sun. So when you talk about championship habits, I'm curious, like, what are you referring to? Are we talking about putting the right fuel in your body, getting the right rest, things like that, or are there other habits you're looking to develop? No,
5: I mean, it's, it's right in line with what you're talking about. The, the way you, you, you eat, the way you sleep, perform, um, getting to the arena early, you know, diving on the, on the floor for loose balls, um, you know, communicating effectively, you know, digging into the scouting report, the game plan, um, respecting the game throughout the entire season, so the summer, the fall, it's just a, a constant desire to improve in every, every area of your life that will help the performance on the court increase, That doing things off the court that will translate to on-court success. That's how we define championship habits.
1: Well said. James Jones, my guest. Before you go, you mentioned Devin Booker. He just finished up his fourth season, yet he's only 22. When you look at what he's done so far, how high is his ceiling?
5: Man, it's unbelievable how good he is. You know, you don't know until you get a chance to see him perform every night. Um, but he's out there with the NBA's best players, and you know, every night he goes into the game knowing that the opposing team is trying to take him away. Uh, yet he's still able to impact the game and score so efficiently. Um, I'm, I'm excited for his growth. Like you said, he's only—he's not even 25. He hasn't reached his prime yet. But but it'll, it'll be interesting to see him uh, continue to climb that ladder. Uh, and eventually be regarded as the best shooting guard in the NBA.
1: So when you look at the vision for the next few seasons, does it feel like this is a building process that's going to take some time, or do you feel like maybe you can skip a few steps and make some noise quickly?
5: No, I mean, we hope to, to make noise quickly, but, you know, the expectation isn't to skip steps. So if, if all things come together, you know, and you know how this thing is, it, there's no defined plan. You just, you know, put some guys in a room, you put them in the building, you give them the right things. And uh, you do everything you can to, to to help them. But ultimately, it comes back down to the players. And if they perform, you have success. If they don't, um, we just have to go back in, in, into the lab and figure out ways to help them improve.
1: All right, this email sets up like this. I'll give you a hint. It's Ritt! It's, it's Ritt! Dear Jim, last night's victory was crucial. We totally dominated on the hardwood, And I led the way by knocking down key shots with no time to spare. I cannot wait for our next game because we are absolutely rolling. All right, Alvin, walk that back. Get your little ding ready and play along. I'll help you if you need it. Dear Jim, last night's victory was crucial. We totally dominated on the hardwood. And I led the way by knocking down... Key shots with no time to spare. I cannot wait for our next game because we are absolutely rolling. Strike Searly. The new guy proudly tweeting about his 264 game in his bowling league last night. Signed pinlesk's spare emailer wore the bowlers on the other team trying to jam their digits in Garrett's eye sockets and pie hole when they mistook his dome for a 16 pound ebonite it's red Garrett bro I'm not going to tell you what to do with your twitter feed because it is your twitter feed just know they're paying attention Alright, so uh, I didn't see it until now but Denlesks sent this along. The new guy. It's Ritt! It's lit. Has an answer. Dude, I had no idea. My man can bowl now. Check this out. Garrett Ritt tweeted this. Dude, you rolled a 264? 264. 219. Alright, 219. So what's the amount in the final column? What? Got it. All right. So 219 plus handicap got him at 264. So my man rolled at 219. Tom Haberstroh joins us once again. It's good to have you back. Tom, how are you?
6: I'm good. How are you?
1: Good. Really, really good. Let me start here. As you pointed out last night on Twitter, the average point differential through four games in last year's Rockets Warriors series was nearly 20 per game. This year, it's less than five. So we'll start right there. How do you explain that?
6: Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the, the play of James Harden, uh, wh- who in the past years he really gasses out in the fir- after the first game. He's a guy whose conditioning seems to get the best of him. Uh, you know, in series past, remember a few years ago against the Spurs, where he had nothing left in the tank, um, and it was just an embarrassing series defeat there in Houston. And last year, a lot of his efficiency was just, you know, relegated to just game ones. And he dribbles around and he looks exhausted out there, but not in this series. He's been so much better. Uh, And PJ Tucker has so much more energy. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact they're playing the Warriors early. You know, this is the Western Conference semifinals, the second round. And I think a lot of the reason you're seeing them. Uh, you know, not get blown out in these losses in the games that they have lost. It's been really close. I think it's because of the stamina. You look at Chris Paul and his hamstring issues and his age and the miles on his tires, this is when you want to face the Golden State Warriors. And I think the way that Eric Gordon has stepped up, the way that P.J. Tucker has been destroying the Warriors on the boards, a lot of it is just energy. It's just a lot of endurance. And I think what you're seeing is the advantage of playing the Warriors now after that grueling Clippers series that the Warriors had to go through. And you've got Klay Thompson, Steph Curry, a little bit gimpy here in this, in this matchup. Klay hasn't played very well, um, but I think you're seeing the Rockets are taking advantage of their
1: legs here. I agree, Tom. We were talking about this, that if it were anybody else, you would not make the argument that the sooner you see Golden State, the better. You'd rather not run into them sooner. But because of what happened last year and what you're pointing out right now, it definitely did benefit Houston to get them earlier as opposed to later. But one of the big questions coming into this series was whether or not Houston's defense was for real. It was terrible at the start of the year. Then they bring back their defensive wizard on the staff and they turn it around. What do you make of the defense that Houston has played in this series?
6: Oh my gosh! Jeff Bzdelak, the quote-unquote defensive coordinator for the Rockets, you know, after that first month where they were just abysmal on that end of the floor, they lose Luka Doncic, they lose Trevor Reza, and it looks like they just didn't have the personnel to contend with the very best in the NBA. And ever since Bizdellick came on, they've been locked in defensively. I think they were a top two defensive team after the All Star break. They did a number on the Utah Jazz, even though it's a one. One man offense there with in Donovan Mitchell. Uh, they did an incredible job of locking him down, and and Rudy Gobert. And in this series, they're just being super physical. Last night, Steve Kerr telling reporters that they just got a bunch of middle linebackers, and in this series, you're seeing them just out physical uh, the Golden State Warriors. And I will say this: Eric Gordon doesn't get enough credit for how he's done against Clay Thompson in in this season. Clay Thompson normally scores. 30 points every 100 possessions. In this series, when guarded by Eric Gordon, that scoring rate of 30 points goes down to five when he's handled by Eric Gordon. He's been an an amazing defender on clay, shadowing him on all those screens that they run off him. Uh, He's just been there really rock solid. And I think offensively, every time he takes a shot, I feel like it's going in. He has a lot of confidence. He's got some dribble drive game. I think they're just playing maximum capacity right now. And just physically, uh, you know, Chris Paul is just a nuisance out there. James Harden, for his part, he's been doing fine. And I think that is a is a really big thing is you're seeing P.J. Tucker uh, being able to play at the five and go small because there aren't any weak links defensively. Uh, James Harden has stepped up. Everybody has stepped up because they're willing to just – overpower them and play physical. And I think P.J. Tucker and Eric Gordon are leading the way.
1: We're talking to Tom Haverstraw. I love both those guys. I think Gordon's been an absolute monster. And P.J. Tucker, like, how could you not know this about this guy already? But apparently some are just figuring it out. P.J. Tucker has been amazing. Like, last year you had Trevor Ariza, who was the defensive specialist when it came to Kevin Durant. But he's gone, as you point out. What about Tucker? What about the job he's done on Durant and in two games, the last two games in particular?
6: Well, I think what P.J. Tucker does, Uh, is he's, he's a lot like Patrick Beverly where he's fearless as a defender. He's going to get under you. Uh, he's a cerebral player. He's really smart out there and he knows that he's got to really play strong against Kevin Durant. He's not going to keep him under, you know, 30 points every single night, but just make everything difficult. But Jim, the thing that is, um, is, you know, marvels me about PJ Tucker is offensively he is destroying the warriors on the boards. i mean last night how many times did you see him go from the corner sprint up at the rim and just pull down a rebound or tap it out to a teammate you know he's not big he's maybe six foot six like a, a little bit taller kyle lowry out there he reminds me of uh, of chuck hayes um for the houston rockets back in the day where it's just like you can't move that guy but then suddenly he stands there in the corner and then just burst out to the basket to get these offensive rebounds, and that's killer against the Golden State Warriors because they want the ball. They want to go out and transition. And what happens is you saw in last night's game, they hold the ball for all 24 seconds, and then they get an offensive rebound and they ISO it again and they drown out the clock. So these offensive rebounds by P.J. Tucker, all hustle plays, he is like recharging his batteries in the corner. Uh, and then just, man, just gets the ball, and he has a knack for just being there at the right spot. So credit to P.J. Tucker, not just defending Kevin Durant, but killing the Warriors where they are very vulnerable on the offensive board.
1: Tom Haverstrow is joining us. All right, so let me switch to the East now, Tom. In Game 1, Boston held Giannis to 22 points on 7-for-21 shooting. Since then, though, he's gone for 29, 32, and 39 last night. Exactly what changed there?
6: I think the the wall that they created is crumbling, uh, Game of Thrones style. The Great Wall, they they've fall. It's fallen. I mean, in Game One, when you saw just multiple bodies in front of Giannis, uh, you know they only got 13 baskets in the rim area. So only 13 field goals at the rim in Game One. The Bucks. A lot of it is because Giannis was just not getting there. But in game two, that number went up to 16. In game three, it went up to 23. And in game four last night, the Bucks had 29 baskets at the rim. It was a layup line. And I think they just broke the Boston Celtics just by uh, attrition, just going at it and being aggressive and attacking the basket. Uh, I think the Celtics just look co- completely discombobulated. Offensively, you heard Marcus Smart say, you know, it's not just in a vacuum that that offensively they struggled and i think it it really translates defensively where they're not playing together they're not rotating and i think a big reason why is because Kyrie Irving's been inefficient taking a lot of shots and i think they're just not playing together and you're seeing you need to play together to defend the Milwaukee Bucks and Giannis and they're just not doing that again the the rim area baskets went from 13 to 16 to 23 to 20
1: Nine in game four. Tom Haberstroy is joining us. Hey, Tom, go back to Kyrie. He's inefficient, to be sure, but overall, how would you describe his performance over the course of the season and then in particular in this series?
6: You know, Kyrie has been efficient in the season. Um, in the games that he hasn't played, they've been just fine. Uh, I just don't know about the fit in Brad Stevens' offense. You know, Brad Stevens is an egalitarian offensive coach, he wants to get everyone involved. And that kind of uh, team-first mentality really worked to their advantage last year in the playoffs They go to a Game 7 in the Eastern Conference Finals a lot because of their ball movement. And you're seeing in this postseason Kyrie is trying to take it upon himself and say, I'm going to pull you out of this. I'm going to shoot my way out of this. And even last night saying, 22 shots, I should have taken 30. And that is really antithetical to the way that Brad Stevens wants to play. Last year in the postseason, they averaged 290 passes per game. And this year it's dropped to 270. You better be more efficient if you're going to have fewer passes. You better get more efficient looks. And you're just not getting it with Kyrie Irving. I think a lot of the times we think Kyrie is a superstar, the number one guy, because he's won a title and he hit that game-winning shot against the Warriors. But I really believe that he's better suited as a number two or a number three uh, if he wants to win a championship. Right now you're seeing he's just not efficient enough to be the number one guy and take 20,
1: 25 shots every game. So he right now is taking a lot of heat and deservedly so. But at the same time, Tom, what has happened to Gordon Hayward in this series? And how big of a concern is that for Boston? It's a huge concern.
6: At NBC, we do this segment called The Big Number, uh, a video segment where I highlight a stat that really tells a story about a team or a player. And earlier this season, uh, you know, I did a segment about Gordon Hayward. And when he scores at least 15 points, the, the Celtics are 14 and 2, uh, almost unbeatable when he is going. But in this series, he's been absolutely gone. He hasn't really made an impact. Uh, and I think that is, if the Kyrie thing is the number one story, right 1B is, is Gordon Hayward and the fact that he has not made an impact in this series. He's the number one guy on their payroll. They got to figure that out because without Gordon Hayward, not only is he taking up the cap space, but I just think it's the elephant in the room is, no, you know, when is Gordon Hayward going to be that guy again, if he's ever going to be that guy? Because they need him to be the Utah Jazz Gordon Hayward. And statistically, he's more like the Boston Evan Turner, which is okay, but not when you're getting paid like LeBron James, Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook. You need to get more out of Gordon Hayward going forward. Big question mark here in Game 5 and going into next season.
1: Now, Tom, in terms of the big number, earlier today you recorded a big number video that's going to drop tomorrow, but the teaser is a photo of Kobe and Kyrie. Can you give me a hint? What is that going to be about?
6: Uh, Just, It's not a good thing when you you see Kyrie Irving wanting to take more shots. Let's put it that way. Uh, There's going to be a number in there, that's going to be startling about how the Celtics do when Kyrie Irving takes a lot of shots. I don't think uh, it's a good thing that you're seeing him have this Mamba mentality where I'm going to shoot more. That's going to be the panacea here. I want to shoot more to get them out of this because historically that has not worked out for the Celtics and it has not worked out for Kyrie's career when he shoots a lot. So stay tuned for tomorrow. Big number. Uh, I've already talked to a couple people about this. It's going to blow your mind.
1: I'll look for that. Tom Haverstrow is my guest. All right, before you go, the Sixers and Raptors meet in Toronto tonight, Game 5 of that series. What is your overall feel for the series and how it plays out the rest of the way?
6: You know, it all depends on Joel Embiid's health. You know, he it's so bizarre how he gets these minor injuries or minor minor afflictions in postseason time last year when he broke his orbital bone uh, in his face and had to wear the mask and it kind of, you know, threw him off his game. And this year he's, he's got stomach issues and an upper respiratory infection. I just want to see him at his best. And when he's, when he's out there and playing uh, like we know he can, that's the team that can't be beat. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, you're seeing him really struggle with his conditioning with whatever sickness is, is laboring. He's laboring through, Uh, Kawhi Leonard is unfazed whatever they're doing against him he's been incredible Um, and it's not just this year Jim Kawhi Leonard was this good before Zaza Petrulia's foot went underneath him in 2017 with the Spurs so he's incredible but we really need to see Joel Embiid as best if Toronto uh, is going to play this way with Kawhi Philly has to get more out of Joel Embiid. I just don't know if he's going to be healthy enough to do it.
1: So, Tom, really quickly, in terms of Portland and Denver, that's shaped as, as a really nice series. You had taken Portland to win that series in seven before it started. Have you seen anything that would make you change your mind? I
6: mean, Jokic is so good. Jamal Murray is so good. Um, I, I just I need to see more out of Dame Lillard. Um, you know, those long-range shots I've talked about on this program before, you know, the Logo 3s, Logo Lillard, Hasn't really come into effect in this series yet. It opens up so much for that Portland offense. If Dame Lillard can pull up from 30 feet like he did to end game five their last series, I think it's going to be a huge factor going forward. Is How can the Blazers assert their dominance offensively, not go through Ennis Cantor, but they need to get more out of Dame Lillard and those logo threes, Look for that in Game 5 where they're going to have to get some more offense out of Dame. He hasn't uncorked an amazing game here in this series, but I expect it to happen soon, uh, not not to the Denver liking. I think it's going to be a tough one for Denver to, to withstand a day, a big Dame Lillard showing.
1: He is an NBC Sports NBA insider, host of the Haber Show podcast, creator of the ALS Pepper Challenge, and a good friend of the program. Tom, great job. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Anytime, Jim. I've got to take a moment to talk to you about the Johnny O tweener button. This is one of my favorite inventions ever. It is genius. It's a game changer, practically a life changer. Johnny O invented and patented the tweener button. What this is, is the tweener button is the first patented button to make sure that you're not too buttoned up or too unbuttoned. Like bros, really nobody wants to see your chest hair. You know that, right? The hidden button solves that issue. In fact, it solves the age-old second button dilemma. Should you button one or should you button two? Every Johnny O shirt comes with their patented tweener button, so you're always going to look just right. Again, a total game-changer. And right now, use the promo code Rome and get 20% off your first order at johnny-o.com. At checkout through May 30th, 20% off the regular price button-ups, which come in a range of fabrics, patterns, and styles. They're beautiful. I wear them all the time now. And and shipping is free for orders over $85. That's johnny-o.com, promo code Rome. Get 20% off the first order. Free shipping on orders over 85 bucks. Go to johnny-o.com for your tweener shirt. 20% off and check out the wide selection of shirts and other products ranging from polos to shorts, pants, swim, and more. johnny-o.com. All right, so we've talked about the Celtics, so I'm going to give you my thoughts on Kyrie. Let's go back. Let's go back to May 27th, 2018. May 27th, 2018, Game 7, Eastern Conference Finals. The Boston Celtics starting lineup, Tatum, Horford, Baines, Rozier, and Brown. That's a starting five, which included a 20-year-old, a 21-year-old, a 24-year-old. And they started Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals and nearly won the damn thing. They had a 3-2 series lead. And then LeBron went LeBron. LeBron. But coming out of that series, every Celtics fan was saying, just wait. Wait until Gordon Hayward comes back. Wait until Kyrie Irving comes back. And then they did. Then they did come back. And now those same Celtic fans are saying, just wait. Just wait until Kyrie leaves. We can't wait until Kyrie leaves. It's incredible. If last night was Kyrie's final game in Boston as a Celtic, I don't think there are going to be very many Celtic fans that are that sorry to see that guy go. I mean, what an amazing 11 months it has been. And what an amazing night last night was. Kyrie playing at home. 23 points, 10 assists, 6 rebounds. I mean, not great, not terrible. But if you dig a little deeper, if you dig a little deeper, you realize it actually is terrible. Because everything about his performance was terrible. His head did not seem to be in the game. His heart didn't seem like that was in the game either. And when his team needed him most, he was nowhere to be found. The guy left the court before the game was even over. Now, I know that's a classic sports radio thing. You know, guys leaving the court early or not shaking hands at the end of the series. Easiest topic ever. That's right up there with the designated hitter. Whether Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame. Whether or not to pay college athletes. Or Bob Knight reaction, the laziest talk radio topics ever. I mean, I could say a few things about how Kyrie is a quitter and then just go to the phones and take three hours of calls on that. Easiest and laziest thing ever. Same show that every other hack in the world is doing right now. Here's the thing about Kyrie leaving the court early, it didn't matter. It's not a problem. Because the guy barely seemed to be on the court when he was there in the first place. Who cares if the guy left? He wasn't doing anything when he was on it. Not when guys like George Hill and Pat Connaughton are absolutely dominating Boston's backcourt. I mean, don't get me wrong. Those two guys are gamers. They battle, they'll come at you. But they're not superstars. And that can't happen if you're Kyrie Irving, alleged superstar, in a must-win game. Kyrie had this to say after Game 3.
7: Um, you know, from this point on, I don't think you'll see another 8 for 22.
1: So after Game 3, Kyrie, quote, From this point on, I don't think you'll see another 8 for 22. Kyrie Irving in Game 4, 7 for 22. Jim Rome, today, awesome. Man, I love that. The guy was right. We didn't see another 8 for 22. That would have been an improvement. But if you ask him, the problem was not that he took 22 shots. It's that he didn't take more shots.
7: You know, for me, the 22 shots, you know, I should have shot 30. You know, it it really, I'm not great of a shooter, so I think that...
1: I should have shot 30 because I'm not great of a shooter. I see this guy working. You know, there's that legendary Kobe story about going 0 for 30 before he'd go 0 for 9... Because 0 for 9 means you beat yourself. I guess that's where Kyrie's coming from. I guess. I think. Sort of. One problem. In his last three games, Kyrie is 19 for 62. The volume of shots is not the issue. It's the volume of shots that are going in. But the more telling part of his night came in the following answer.
7: Um, Basketball player. um, You know, prepare the right way. Uh, like I said, it's, uh, it's a little different when, you know, your, your rhythm is challenged every play down. Uh, you know, you're being picked up full court. You know, they're doing things to test you. And, uh, you know, the expectations on me are going to be sky high. Um, and I try to utilize their aggression against them and still put my teammates in great positions while still being aggressive. I'm trying to do it all.
1: So what you're saying is it's because of the way they're guarding you that it's a little bit different, that it's disrupting your rhythm. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. This is how this goes. When you want to be a superstar, this is how it goes. This is what happens. The Milwaukee Bucks, a basketball team that you're playing in the playoffs, yet they're going to try and play defense against you, Kyrie. That's how it goes. They might do crazy things like pick up full court. They might do things to test you. That's what happens. I mean, is this new to you? Because you can't honestly be telling everybody that this is hard right? I mean, that's not your take. This is hard. They're doing things to me. It's supposed to be hard. That's the point. And if you are who you claim to be, that's what's expected of you, to beat whatever it is they throw at you. The problem is, I'm not sure that you are who you claim to be. Like, you want to be the man. You want to have your own team. And then throughout the entire season, you've ducked that. Being the man on a team is awesome when you're winning, But it also means that you've got to step up when you're losing. And Kyrie ducks that as often as possible. You wanted it. You got it. But apparently you can't handle it. Now Kyrie is down 3-1. Sure, he's been down 3-1 before. Cleveland was down 3-1 to Golden State in 2016. So, he's asked, is there anything that you can draw upon from that? Quote, it's hard to make any comparisons. End quote. He then added, quote, I think the difference is just the experience, end quote. Wrong again. You know what the difference is? The 2016 Cavs had LeBron James. The 2019 Celtics have Kyrie Irving. That's the difference, not experience. That's your difference. LeBron James is the man. Kyrie thinks he's the man. Kyrie wants the perks of being the man, but without the responsibilities that come along with it. And this is a warning now to every team looking at Kyrie this summer. I'm sure somebody will max him out. But let that be your warning. The Celtics seem to have gotten worse since he returned. It's not necessarily all on him, but it's worth looking at. Here's another thing that you need to ask yourself if you want to sign this guy. Is Kyrie the guy that you want to build around? Does Kyrie make the guys around him better? Ask the Celtics. They were one win from the finals last year, and now they're one loss from the golf course this year. So, did he make them better? Was he worth it? Again, somebody will pay him max money. Just know what you're getting when you sign him. Buyer beware. I'd be really concerned about bringing that guy in and expecting him to be a one and paying him max money. I agree with what Tom Haberstroh said. He's better served as a two. Maybe even a three, depending on where he goes. Dana White is my guest. Dana, good to have you back. How are you? I'm great, buddy. How are you doing? Good, good. Dana, I know you've got a big week, so let me jump right in. Rose Namajunas is the strawweight champion. She has won six of her last seven fights. So we start with that one. How different, though, is this fight against Jessica Andrade?
2: Yeah, this is, this is, this is a really tough fight for her. Uh, is a beast. An absolute beast. And a lot of people think Andraj is gonna run right through Rose. Um, but let's not forget, Rose beat J Jacek twice and everybody on her way to get to Ioannio Jacek. She looks better every time she fights. Uh, this is one of those fights, man. I have no idea how this is gonna go. But I don't think that, 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 you know, I get why Rose is the underdog, but People are underestimating
1: Rose once again. Now that's UFC 237 live from Rio de Janeiro, ESPN+. Dan, the thing about Rose, for those who do not know, UFC 237 embedded episode one starts with her gardening and talking about the tomatoes that she's growing. Her childhood dream was to become a farmer and then she starts playing the piano. Not exactly what you'd expect from somebody who is the straw weight champion of the world. What is she like when she's not in the cage?
2: And whose nickname is Thug, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Thug is out there planting, planting flowers and and uh, playing piano. No, she's a very talented woman, and uh, she's a very interesting person. You know, she's a world champion. She goes out on on the biggest stage on earth and, and fights other people in a cage. Um, yet she's very quiet, very reserved. Um,
1: yeah, she, she's not what you would expect. So, Dana, how does that work exactly? I mean, how do you go from gardening and playing the piano to cracking skulls? Does she just flip a switch <laughs> on the walk to the cage?
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, you know, with a lot of these fighters, you hear them talk about how when it's go time, they turn on a switch and become a different person, and that is absolutely what Rose does.
1: Dana White joining us. Now, what's it say about Rose, Dana, that she's willing to go defend her belt in Brazil in front of Jessica's fans?
2: Yeah, that implies thug. Um, you know, a lot of people will not go down to Brazil. They fear they don't, they fear they they fear that they don't get the right call from the uh, judges, and uh, you know the crowd is so hostile. And you know it, it's basically Brazil versus the world. When I tell you this, when we called Rose Namajunas and gave told her this fight and told her that the fight was she was going to be defending her title in Brazil, you know on Andrade's home turf, didn't even flinch didn't even question it, didn't even, you know, nothing. She just accepted the fight. Um, And I have a lot of respect for her for that.
1: All right, now, Danny, you and I have talked about this in the past, about how fighting is the most universal sport. And you've got that card in Brazil, further proof of that. But for those who have never been to Brazil or never seen a fight card from Brazil, how would you describe the love of UFC in Brazil? What is it like down there on fight night?
2: Oh, it's crazy. It's literally soccer and UFC in Brazil, that's it. And, um, then, you know, the fans are good. This thing's sold out. It's going to be sold out, packed. The fans are there very early and they are very loud and, uh, very into the fights, man. And and it's, like I said, it's all about Brazil versus the world. They cheer on the Brazilians. They boo their competitors. It's, it's, it's very electric.
1: Dana White joining us. Big weekend coming up. Also, Dana, on the card, you've got a couple of legends. Let me start with Anderson Silva. He turned 44 a few weeks back, yet he was in the cage against Israel Adesanya. He didn't win, but he didn't seem out of place either. How do you explain what he's doing at this point in his life still?
2: Yeah, this is another guy that's always taking care of himself. When you talk about the greats like Brady, who's still around, you know, they take care of themselves. Anderson Silva isn't a partier. You never saw him out in the clubs when he was younger. He's an absolute true martial artist, always in the gym, always trying to improve and get better. Um, and, and he's he, he's, a, he's a tough guy, even at 44 to beat. And uh, Jared Cannonier is a young up-and-coming kid with dynamite in both hands. His big weakness earlier on in his career was wrestling. He's got his wrestling under control now and looking really good. So this is a very big fight for Anderson, and for Cannonier. this is a, this is literally a career changer for him if he can beat Anderson.
1: Dana White, UFC president, is joining us. Dana, I had Israel on the show a few weeks back, and while I did have high expectations, I mean, he blew me away. How special is Adesanya both as a fighter and a personality?
2: Yeah, he's incredible. Um, yeah, this, this kid... When we do this fight, and, and we're, we're trying to figure out exactly where this fight's going to go, but uh, Rob Whitaker, who is the champion in that division uh, from Australia against Adesanya, who is the uh, interim champion from New Zealand, this fight is going to be massive. Obviously, we want to do this thing in Australia, but we're still trying to figure out where this thing's going to go. But when it does, th- this fight might end up being in a stadium. Um, Israel Anasanya burst out of the scene, has stayed active, has taken all the fights that we've offered him, and now he got himself a title and in position to fight to unify the title in that division. Very, very
1: big. I was going to say, Danny, he's made no secret of the fact that he wants to be one of the biggest athletes in the world, and that's in any sport. I mean, he's huge already in your sport, but is his upside such that he could transcend even your sport and be one of the biggest athletes in the world in any sport?
2: Definitely. You know, he's a good looking kid. Speaks really well. His, his style of fighting is fun. And, uh, you know, he's not shy. <laughs> you know, he's got he's got he's got all the things that, that, that make somebody a star.
1: We're talking to Dana White for a few more moments. Another one of the legends, Dana, on Saturday's card is Jose Aldo. He used to be or was absolutely unbeatable until Connor got him and then he lost two of his next three fights. So where is Aldo now as a fighter?
2: I love this fight. Aldo has actually looked good in his last couple of fights. He's, uh, you know, he's on the comeback. He's, his head's in a different place right now, and he's taking on Alexander Volkanovsky, who is an absolute beast. This guy's record is 19-1, and 1, and uh, 11 of those wins are by knockout. This fight should be an absolute war. Uh, that's one of my favorite fights that night.
1: Dana White, UFC president, joins us once again in the jungle. You know, Dana, there was that time where Conor was the face of the UFC, does it still feel like that's the case?
2: Yeah. You know, Connor's one of our huge stars. Um, you know, I, hey guys, I said after the, after the Mayweather fight, I said, you know, when a kid makes this kind of money, he might never fight again. Look how many times he's fought since the Mayweather fight. You know, that's what happens when you, plus I don't know if you read, uh, you know, the business news recently, but he just hit over a billion dollars in, uh, in, in, in sales and, his, in his um, whiskey company. So, Conor McGregor's doing really well financially. And when you start doing really well financially, uh, it, it definitely interferes with your fighting career.
1: I mean, Danny, you've long said that. So where does that leave him? I mean, when do you expect him to fight next? Is it Donald Cerrone who called him out again over the weekend? What is next for Conor?
2: He and I are getting together very soon uh, within, the next, uh, within the next week. And we're going to figure out what's next for him. But, uh, yeah, I see him fighting this summer.
1: Hmm. Anybody that you could say who we might fight? Yeah,
2: listen, you know, you just said it yourself. The Cerrone fight makes sense. Uh, there's a couple of different options out there for him. You know, he was talking about Cerrone at one point. I don't really know, but that, that fight makes sense.
1: Dana White joining us. Dana, let me go off the board on this one. Olympic champion Jordan Burroughs is on record as saying he'd love to give MMA at least one shot. Last night at Beat the Streets, he made quick work of one of your best grapplers, Ben Askren, on the mat. Would you have any interest in giving Burroughs a shot in the octagon?
2: Yeah, listen, I'm always interested in, uh, you know, these guys that are considered the best athletes and whatever it is they do, wanting to come
1: to the UFC. Yeah, Obviously, I'd, I'd be very interested. All right. What about Askren? If you had to sum him up...
2: I got Askren. Askren's with me. How how fast did he beat him?
1: Yeah. Pretty quickly. Pretty quick work. Really? Oh, wow. I didn't even know that. All right. So if you... Help me with Askrin. If you had to sum up Askren in a sentence or two, how would you do that?
2: (laughs) Interesting. He's very interesting. Askren is a very interesting guy. You know, he and I have had a
1: a long history um,
2: of smack talk between us. And then... You know, he retired, but was interested in coming into the UFC. And I think, you know, timing is everything, and the timing was right for him to come. And, and he's been fun since he's been here.
1: We are talking to Dana White for another moment or so. Dana, really quickly, if you take a step back and you look at where you are right now, from the outside, it would seem like you've done pretty much everything there is to do, and it would be easy to rest on your laurels. So what still gets you fired up and excited? Is it China? Is it further international expansion? What is it?
2: Yeah, all of that. Yeah. And um, I I love finding up and coming talent. You know, my my contender series show starts this June again, where we start looking for for talent. And I I love it. Uh, China excites me very much. And we actually have a couple of really good Chinese fighters right now that we think have the potential to become world champions. And I love the idea of this new platform, uh, you know, the new digital platform out there. ESPN Plus plus Fight Pass, our own digital platform. Um, I see huge possibilities for this uh, and I'm too excited to walk away right now.
1: Alright, so one last thought. When you look at the potential of the Performance Institute in Shanghai, what could that mean for the sport and how hyped are you about that?
2: Shanghai and I'm opening three in Mexico and I'm doing one down in Puerto Rico. So, I'm very excited about you. What's going to happen is you're going to have kids coming in off the street to train in these facilities. And, uh, you know, we're going to build world champions in these places. And the ones that we don't build into world champions, they'll go off and probably start training other people and open their own schools. This is how you build the, the sport. This is how you grow it and, and create not only uh, more infrastructure, but more fans.
1: UFC 237 live from Rio de Janeiro it's on ESPN plus Namajunas and Andrade and a number of other good fights too UFC president friend of the program Dana White my guest Dana have a great week great to have you back thanks so much you too my friend thank you we go to Medford Trapper in Medford Trap brother what's up how are you
3: hey Jimmy how you doing man
1: I'm great how about you Trapper
3: uh, hanging in there. Uh, we got a new bone scan coming up Thursday to see if this sucker is spread. But uh, staying off the ropes, and I'll answer the bell in the 12th. You know always, that. always. Any, anyhow, there's, uh, there's still some idiots out there questioning the decision in the uh, derby on Saturday. Uh, I've got to respond to that and a couple other things, if you let me. Um, derby, as you know, Jim, actually began at the quarter poll um, at the head of the stretch. There's no question that favorite Maximum Security drifted three lanes out from the rail, completely blocking oncoming War of Will, who actually was about to go up his ass, uh, who could be argued to be War of Will, to be making a run past Maximum Security toward the Roses. As you can see in the replay, which you can appreciate, Jim, being a horseman, War of Will's jockey, Tyler Gaffalione, I think it is, At the time of maximum security's three-lane drift was standing, start to standing up in his irons, usually a sure sign of a jock and a horse avoiding a collision. Actually, if Gaffiglione, if he hadn't reined his horse in at the head of the stretch, there would have been a disastrous pileup in the slop. The last thing needed in the year of Santa Ana's disastrous putting down of 23 horses. The drift was obviously illegal. The store, stewards eventually made the right call. All that said, Jim, other questions abound. The objections, with, the objections which caused the inquiry were brought by a country house uh, jock, Flavian Pratt, and, uh, who was a long-range toddy's uh, jock, John Court. Given the obvious violation why didn't the stewards bring the inquiry instead of waiting for others to do their job? Equally curious, Jim. Maximum Security owner Gary West called the decision "Bush League." Actually, not as much as you claiming it to be, Gary. He also threatened to pull Maximum Security from the Preakness, saying, "Quote: When you're what was it? Uh, when you're not going for the Triple Crown, sometimes it doesn't make sense to wheel the horse back two weeks later." And so, Gary, with the alleged best horse in the Derby, you're going to turn down a shot at the 1.5 million purse in the Mile of 316 Preakness? Or, going to the age-old argument, is this an admission that the Triple Crown is too hard on three-year-old Colt legs? Last, and from our dotard in the Casablanca, we hear a quote, it was a rough-and-tumble race on a sloppy track. Actually, a beautiful thing to watch, yeah, try that from the Irons, Manson. And his last quote, only in these days of political correctness could such an overturn occur. The overturn occurred because, Donald, it was right, it was just, and it was moral. Something you, you draft dodging cracker neck doesn't have a clue about either. Happy Modest Day to Janet and Jimmy Tramp's like us, babe. Thanks for the
1: dime. I'm out. Trapper, rock him. Have a great week, Trapper thinking of you as always. What did he just call the president? Draft dodging cracker neck. Let's go to the phones. I'll do it. What the hell? Parody Larry. Lawrence, what do you got? Hey,
0: Jim. How are you, buddy?
1: Good, good. Larry, how are you?
0: I'm good. Hey, listen, uh, no disrespect to my man Beaks in Studio City, but that human fat alarm spends more time in the water than Charlie the Tuner. And when he has friends over, it's more like geeks in his studio tubby. But I love the guy. Anyway, uh, as far as the Derby goes, they did the right thing. You're absolutely right. You got screwed a long time ago. So uh, here's my parody about the Derby. A horse is a horse, of course, of course. Never know what it does on a race course. Owner Gary West has no remorse with maximum security. His horse led the way out of the gate, around in the turn it did not run straight. Objections were filed, it was not too late, which sealed his derby fate. Jim is still pissed from when shared belief should have won the Breeders' Cup. When Barry Earn slammed him right at the start, and then he could never catch up. Rome took it in stride, cookies got class, but Bob Baffert acts more like a horse's ass. You've never heard of a talking horse? Well, listen to this. I am SJP. It's That's not a
7: good call. No. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call.
1: So, (laughs) Alvin, you let that whole thing go, but you ran him because he went with the SJP reference. Parody Larry with a Mr. Ed parody about Gary West, me, and Bob Baffert. (laughs) (laughs) All right, no golden ticket for you, Lawrence. When we come back, Tom Haberstroh, NBC Sports NBA insider, joins us. Imagine a middle-aged guy like that just sitting around trying to rhyme, sitting around trying to come up with parodies about Mr. Red. All right. I'll finish that thought in a minute. Back to the phones. I'm talking about the Celtics, by the way. Let's go to Los Angeles. Matt in L.A. Yo, Matt, what's up?
4: Romulus James, hey, thanks for the vine from San Pedro to Singapore. You're welcome. Your boy Matt in L.A.'s coming in here with some sports takes for a change. Hey, Paul Pierce, Stick to faking injuries, er doing a West Unseld impersonation. Because the last two times that you flapped your gums about how this was game, and this was series in New Jersey only to watch your team get blasted the next two games, and now your beloved Celtics have literally went into the woodshed after you declared Milwaukee DOA. So please, man, save it for another program. But hey, Romy, I wanted to let you know, I don't know if you're aware, you are in the presence of a legend. Our dude, it's Rick. Now, I know he's a part of the jungle now, the best show in radio history, but did you know, He had a cameo back in the day, man. Seinfeld, the best possible sitcom in history, when he was dude going out with Elaine, faking like he had a shaved head, only to find out that he was balding. So, my man, I'm welcoming you to Bald Nation. It's wit. That's all I got, Jimmy. Wore James Kelly's bamboo straw arms and sourdough bull forehead. Wore Billy Clarkson stalking Guy Thierry and Bobby Flay on Food Network 6. Unwore Ira Craig abducting Randall so that they could watch sporting events from your patio. Outro.
1: Damn, Matt. <laughs> I often think to myself, man, why are you calling today? You've got nothing to say. But never more so than right there. 1-800-636-8686. From San Pedro to Singapore. You're welcome. We didn't thank you for anything, Matt. Let's keep moving. Yeah, that Paul Pierce take is not aging very well, is it? South Dakota, Ryan. What's up, Ryan? How are you? Hey, Rom, How are you, sir? Good. How about you?
8: Great. I can't wait to hear your take on my uh, beloved Celtics, but I'm going to try and get out in front of you here first. There There's never been a team more talented yet so easy to absolutely loathe than these guys. Game one was a complete smoke job. Paul Pierce... Should have just kept his stupid mouth shut. This team is a top is top five talented, but also top five clown show. I keep hearing about Kyrie may have played his last game in Boston last night. I hope to God that idiot has. Kyrie's as big as a big as big a poser as that mouth breathing dope Rick in Buffalo. Jason Tatum for somehow somehow now thinks he's Kobe freaking Bryant. Plays with about as much as intensity as Ira Craig trying to land a a job out there in SoCal. And Gordon Hayward just disappears like a lot of these guys in your smack-off that don't show up to make a phone call come smack-off day. Milwaukee in five, please, I hope to God, Kyrie is gone. I'm out.
1: Ryan, South Dakota, nice job. Picked up the phone and did what I ask of you, clones. Lob me a telephone call, elevate the conversation, make the show better. We go to South Bend. Oh, man digger digger how are you
9: Tim? i'm fine i'll tell you it's so ironic i was so happy when monty williams was named the phoenix suns coach and obviously he's got to stay with the 76 since to have been on the playoffs and then there's another notre dame connection with the phoenix suns and that's john shoemate who was a big star at ucla game and ending the 88 winning streak of ucla and bill walton back in 74 and he's sort of like one of the scouts that goes look out and looking for a certain college players and what they're going to do in a draft, but Jones is the right guy as general manager. But I'll say this about Mountie Williams. Uh, his life's journey's been interesting. Yes, I recruited him. He was from uh, Washington, D.C. area. He played as a freshman, and then all of a sudden, his sophomore year, he had a little heart problem, had to miss the season. He still made the comeback, like Shoemaker did his sophomore year. He had a heart problem and missed the season, but he made the comeback. But the thing is, that's about Mountie. He had a real tragedy a couple years ago when he lost his wife in Oklahoma City in a car accident. Popovich took care of him, brought him down to San Antonio,
7: and Mountie was
9: there. And then, of course, he ends up going now with the Sixers. But this break for me to see him, and we talked the other night when he got the job on the phone, and I just think he's ready to make the thing happen because he did coach in New Orleans back when as head coach, and that didn't work out. But he knows the system, he knows the NBA. And I guarantee you, he's going to get Phoenix, as James Jones said. Yes, we're going to win. We're going to go in that room, figure out what we need to do to make adjustments. But Mountie will be the guy to get these guys to believe at both ends of the court to win an NBA championship for Phoenix.
1: I love this. Bonus content. Premium content. Digger Phelps calling us on the call-in line. Digger, so you, of course, recruited Monty to Notre Dame. What do you remember about the first time you saw him?
9: Well, actually, I saw him in a, a summer camp, you know, like one of those Nike camps, and he was playing, and one of my assistants back then, I said to him, let's check this kid's grades out. Well, he had the grades, and I said, well, we've got to recruit this guy because he's got potential to be a big-time player, which obviously he became for us at Notre Dame, and at the same time, uh, his whole career in the NBA, uh, from being a player to being an assistant coach to being a head coach, he's always had this will to win, so to speak. And seeing that in certain players when you recruit them is not so much what their talent is, but it's those other characteristics where they play above their potential under pressure. And that's what Mountie is. And he's got the cool personality. You won't see him being screaming and yelling. And I'm a little embarrassed the other night because he's still saying yes, sir, to me. Yes, coach. (laughs) You know, Mountie, just call me Digger. It's fine. You're (laughs) old enough now. You've earned that. But I just think that When I spotted him as a recruit, we've always had great success at Notre Dame as you go back. And, yes, the proudest moment I had was to know that for 20 years coaching Notre Dame, 56 guys played for me, all 56 graduated. So this
1: guy's a winner. Digger Phelps calling in on the call-in line. Digger, it is always good to hear your voice. I appreciate the friendship. And you can call this show anytime you want. No waiting. It's really good to have you on. got it
9: you're the best i love you and even though it's 1 30 in the afternoon i control my life now no one's controlling me i'm done with television done with the done coaching so i have the freedom to choose and i chose to watch you and boy what a gift this was today
1: good for you digger so good to hear your voice i really appreciate you have a great day nobody is controlling him or his life he can do what he wants when he wants digger phelps just dialing around found the show again And that's the second time I think that he's called the program since we came on the CBS Sports Network. And Digger used to come on the show quite a bit back in the day. Good night.